Welcome to the Corrymeela podcast. My name is Padraig Tuma. In this first year of Brexit and a century after the partition of Ireland, I'm in conversation with special guests exploring contemporary Irishness and Britishness through the lenses of history, politics, art and theology. And this week, I'm delighted that my guest is Peter Sheridan, Chief Exec of the Peace and Reconciliation Organisation, Cooperation Ireland. In a career that's now into its fifth decade, Peter tells me about his efforts to secure peace, as well as his years as a great rarity, a Catholic in the police here. I mean, of course I met rogues, scoundrels, bigots, but they were by far in the minority. The vast majority of people were, happened to come from a Protestant background, but they were honourable, decent people who had similar values to me, wanted the same things. The most single, most regular comment I got was that some change, you know, from policing to effectively peace building. And I was confused. I said, no, it's not actually, because policing should be about community building and about peace building. Hello, my name is Padraig Otuma and you're listening to the Corrymeela podcast. With me today is Peter Sheridan, a former senior police officer here in Northern Ireland and now CEO of the peacebuilding organisation Cooperation Ireland. Peter, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Padraig. Just as we start, what room are you talking to us from? So I'm talking to you from my study, which, um, to make you jealous, uh, is sitting on the edge of the Atlantic. So I look right over the Atlantic Ocean into Donegal and into Portrush Harbour. Peter, you were born in 1960 and you've described growing up in a Catholic, Irish, nationalist, comfortable family in County Fermanagh. And then in 1978, um, you joined the RUC, you know, a police force that was at that stage about 95% Protestant and generally seen as 100% unionist. Did you face some opposition from family or friends? I actually joined at 16 as a police cadet, which again was unusual um, in 1976. Um, I was literally 16 years of age. My careers teacher was a Catholic priest, Father Padre Livingstone from Castle Blaney in County Monaghan, who I suppose if I was being at my most benevolent, I would say he probably wasn't the biggest supporter of all things British. So when I had my careers interview, I went in to talk to him. Um, I was going in to talk about joining the post office or hotel management, but came out after the interview having agreed that he would um, bring the, the local RUC recruiting sergeant up to speak to me. Um, and I, to this day, I don't know how we got there in it. Other than that, that time, the recruiting sergeant in Enniskill was a Catholic officer and whether him and Pater Livingstone had built up a relationship in it. But when I went home to talk to my family, because at that time, 1976 was one of the worst years for terrorism in Northern Ireland. But at 16, you know, I was interested in George Best, the girls from the collegiate school up the road. But when I was home, went home to talk to my family about it, there wasn't opposition as such. I mean, there was discussions about would you be better joining the Guards or the Metropolitan Police or the Scottish Police? And, and I did apply at the time to the Metropolitan Police and to the Guards. And um, I got a reply back from the Metropolitan Police to say that they weren't recruiting for the next year. I'm still waiting on a reply from the Guards. In fact, I've asked my former colleague, Drew Horace, maybe he'd look into where that letter is. Um, and then I ended up in, in the plan for the RUC at the time. My grandmother lived with us at the time, and, and maybe this is this sticks in my memory, and maybe it's about faith or fatalism, but 
when the discussion was about the safety um, issues and would you be better joining the Scottish police or the guards, my grandmother, she didn't say a lot, but she said, uh, if he's born to be shot, he'll never be drowned. (laughs) (laughs) But it stuck in my memory um, and, you know, having been involved in numerous incidents and survived many an attack, it does come back to me that there was an element of truth. In fact, there's a a lot of truth in that. And and I'm sure for her, from her perspective, it was a, it was a sense of faith. You said in an interview, Peter, that, you know, maintaining your Irish Catholic nationalist identity was one of your biggest achievements. How did you achieve that? I I suppose in some ways, nationalist identity is is maybe not the strongest way of putting it. I, I would always consider myself to be Irish and an Irish patriot um, in many ways, but not may, maybe nationalist, Irish nationalist in it. Um, there, there, I suppose I grew up in a strong uh, faith, family faith in it. So when I went to post, was posted to Derry and the police, they were in a largely Protestant force, 95% Protestant and uh, you know, the vast majority people that I met and were honourable, decent people. But nevertheless, the culture was naturally going to be of a Protestant culture. So it would have been easy to stay in your bed on a Sunday morning. And because it was Derry and there wasn't many uh, Catholic churches that would have been easy for a police officer to go into on a Sunday, that, that also um, would have caused a difficulty. So I remember saying to myself at the time that, that uh, I, I was going to you know, maintain my faith in it because all of these other, I suppose, um, elements are try- would, would have easily removed it from you and it could have been easy to have, to have um, let it go. And, and maybe, you know, the fact that you have to fight for it sometimes makes it uh, more of what you want to do rather than, you know, uh, people who don't have any challenge around it that can sometimes get lost with people. So I fought for it in that way. I mean, there'd be a, a kind of a big public story that um, Catholics or people with a strong sense of Irishness would have struggled enormously in the RUC from the 70s, 80s and 90s. Was that your experience? It, it wasn't. And, and I'll tell you why it wasn't. I mean, of course, I met rogues, scoundrels, bigots, but they were by far in the minority. The vast majority of people were happened to come from a Protestant background, but they were honourable, decent people who had similar values to me, wanted the same things. And it, it, it's, it was no different than, I guess, that you're in the BBC or in RTE or join any other organisation that you, when you're in the organisation, you get on with people because you like them, you have similar characteristics, uh, similar um, you know, uh, pastimes, and religion wasn't the issue. Of course, around times like the twelfth of July, you, you could you knew the temperature changed, um, and and that was the culture background. But it wasn't a routinely an issue in it. Um, and in fact, you know, I could probably count on the on the one hand the number of times that that I personally received. Um, sectarian comments. Um, I mean, there would have been the usual banter around the place, but you know, in many ways I could give as good as I got in that regard. Um, but it was, it was, it wasn't serious by people that, so it wasn't a, the, the same issue that people perceived from the outside. And then within the context of that and knowing what you're saying, that the, the, the experience inside the RUC, the police at the time was, was not as sectarian as the, the public story that was being told. 
What were the reforms like? Was there resistance or resentment to the upcoming reforms? We'll talk about the actual reforms in a while, but the idea of the reforms and moving to the PSNI, was that taken as a, this is a good thing or was it taken as a, as something else? Well, I think it's like most things in society, you know, some people grasp it and run with it and, and you know, love change and, and run at a pace at it. Other people are, you know, well, I'll go along with it. They probably don't push too hard to, to do it, but yeah, you know, they're getting paid and it's, it's not, um, it's not going to overly um, affect them in that way. And then you will have a group of people who don't like change anyway in life and, you know, it may have seen this as a, as betrayal, may have been more political than other people in the organisation. So there isn't one homogeneous view of it. In fact, it's what you would find in most of society out there, you know, different viewpoints. Um, people have different energies around change. And uh, as I say, some people loved it, some people hated it. Yeah. And the PSNI that replaced the OUC is, you know, it's accountable to a policing board and the policing ombudsman, as well as being scrutinised, you know, by politicians and journalists and activists. Queen's University in Belfast released a piece of research that said that the PSNI, the Police Service of Northern Ireland, is widely regarded as one of the most accountable overseen police services anywhere in the world. Is that uh, an analysis you'd agree with? Yeah, and do you know what? It is no bad thing. If you look across the world at policing, just look at America at the minute and, and some of the challenges around policing. Too often people see the police as something separate from the society. It's everybody's responsibility in society to be policing that society. There happen to be some people who wear a uniform to do that, in it, but it shouldn't be seen as some separate identity because it's, it's about improving people's lives. Um, and, and I always felt that that accountability was a good thing. I mean, I, I even would have described the fact that myself as a Catholic sitting in the back of a police land rover was also an act of accountability because people moderate their behaviour when somebody else is in the room um, or somebody else was in the back of that land rover. You know, and I had been very alert that people would have been conscious of that. So particularly in Derry, mainly Catholic city, and if you're in the Chantello estate, I, I'm sure my presence um, in the back of the police land where people attended events and calls would have acted as an accountability. Do you think that models of accountability for policing, in effect, policing the police, is a model that could be taken up elsewhere around the world? Yeah, and in other organisations. You know, I was um, a, a senior officer in the complaints department one time investigating complaints against the police. And, you know, I um, had a number of police officers uh, went to prison as a result of some of my investigations in it. But no matter how you would have tried to convince the public and the outside that the police investigated themselves, we would do it honourably. It was never, you know, the perceptions are always different in it. So having an independence look into it, I'm not sure that if you, if you examine the statistics, there would be much difference in the number of people who have been either disciplined or convicted with the external body than there was in the internal body. And, and I watched colleagues who, I think uh, police officer colleagues who were in the department with me, who would have been even more ruthless um, against colleagues who broke the rules than probably an outside body was. They may have got more sympathy from an outside body, but uh, but I think just in, in perception terms, it is good for organisations to have somebody to look in from the outside. Um, and that we don't all, the power is not all held within. 
And at the time of the reforming of the police from the RUC to the PSNI, there was a 50-50 recruitment policy that was introduced for about 10 years, whereby the intake would be evenly balanced between, you know, the two main communities that make up the historic sectarian division in Northern Ireland, Catholics and Protestants. Is that a model that you think is, is useful in terms of a, a recruitment policy like that? I think you have to be careful on it, um, Padraig. Uh, and it was required of its time to make change fast in it. And But it did, you know, to some extent discriminate against people because the way the system worked is that, so if there were 200 vacancies, anybody could apply from any community. You filled in a, a community background which identified you as Catholic or other. Um, and, and people were other were obviously the Protestant community. But everybody went through the process and it was only at the end of the process when out of, say, 4,000 people applied, 2,000 people made the, the cut, that they opened the two forms and then they divided them into bundles. And then you took the top of each bundle. But that meant that somebody from the Protestant community who could have been higher up in it, um, where somebody in the Catholic community could further down, although they passed the list. And so you took a selection from both of them. Um, and so to some extent, it's discriminated. But I also think that, you know, 5% of the community could be Chinese. 2% uh, of the community could come from uh, the traveller community. And at what stage do you try and, you know, balance out a police service by being reflective of the whole of society? You know, ten percent um, of the population are gay and lesbian. You know, should we separate them? So I think it has to be carefully done, and I think the the, the police did the right in that it was required to do that change and do it quickly. But it should come to an end, and we should select people based on their skills and abilities, and not on their uh, identity and background. So I'm I'm hearing you say that it's complicated, perhaps. Um, intrinsically flawed, but also necessary and good enough for the time that it was in. Yeah, no, and and there, you know, there are discussions at the minute that the numbers of Catholics applying to the police have dropped, so we should bring it back in again. I just think you have to be careful about that because uh, my view in it is that we should pick the best people for the job, not what colour they are or what background they come from. Um, that it's the best people you want for the job. But humanity as it is, that you have to be reflective of society. I'd like to talk about Cooperation Ireland um, because despite being hailed as a leading contender for the next chief constable, you left the PSNI in 2008 and you became the head of Cooperation Ireland. Could you tell us about that organisation and why you made that move? Yeah, well, at that time, I mean, I, I, had, I had completed 30 years service. I was still 48 years of age and yes, there was a lot of pressure on me to apply for the chief constable's job. but. There's such a variety of life out there and and you know sometimes i'm a bit of a risk taker and and i don't do the orthodox you know uh, the fact that i came from a catholic background joined the police you know uh, i'm a interchurch marriage you know I, I never ever followed the 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 routine path in it and i guess you know when people were pressurizing me or suggesting me to stay then i kind of worked the opposite direction and i thought it would be a great opportunity to do something do something different in life and do something new and and you know, every time i look back on it, it was absolutely the right decision it opened so many other doors and so many other opportunities for me in it and i suppose looking back and it's a risk of course it is um to to make such a jump 
I mean, you brought so much of your experience from policing into the work in Corporation Ireland. You helped to broker agreements between the Unionist Apprentice Boys marchers and then Nationalist residents in Derry. And that was a great success uh, alongside other attempts that would have um, not been so successful or would have been faced more resistance. Um, why do you think that some areas are amenable to negotiation and other areas aren't? Yeah, I mean, interesting when you say that, uh, you know, uh, when I left at the time, um, the, the most single most regular comment I got was that some change, you know, from policing to um, effectively peace building. And I, I, I was confused. I said, no, it's not actually, because policing should be about community building and, and about peace building. And I didn't feel it the same way as people perceived it to be in it. Um, I think if you take the example in Derry, I, I, I suspect that part of that, Podrick, is that you had a Protestant community that lived alongside a, a majority Catholic community, so almost had to get on with them. But also a, a lot of the, um, in the early 60s, you know, the shirt factories and, and people worked together and they kind of knew each other, which is very different than Belfast. You know, even though the, the, the the city and Derry was divided. You know, when I went to the city, first of all, police officers lived on the west bank of the foil. Uh, now, um, within a few years, that wasn't along with the case and they moved to the waterside. But it, it was still a city where people knew each other, knew their families, knew their backgrounds. Um, and I think that makes a difference in it. Belfast is a much bigger conurbation, not the same uh, neighbourliness simply because of the size of it and not the same background of working together or, or knowing the family um, and I think that had a big part in it you know I, I remember being in some of those meetings uh, with the apprentice boys and whether it was Billy Moore general secretary of the apprentice boys or Donahue McNeilis they knew each other's families they knew about each other um, as opposed to just knowing um, about their politics that strikes me as something that you have brought into lots of your work in Cooperation Ireland. I mean, I was an employee of Cooperation Ireland for a wee while, which is where we got to know each other. And it strikes me that you use um, human connection so often within the context of your work and by building human connection in communities, um, by building human connection cross-border, but also then in terms of your own connections in politics and in senior civic society organizations, that um, relationship seems to be a very key thing for you within the context of your work and your work of peace building. Yeah, no, and I absolutely agree with that. And, and um, I'm passionate about that, that, you know, we, even you take it from a faith perspective, love your neighbor as yourself, you know, we, we, that was written for a reason. Um, and yet we don't live it out in normal circumstances. And, it, and, uh, and, and I'm not saying that from that I'm hugely, you know, um, from, from a religious perspective, but I genuinely believe it's the right thing. And I've, and I've constantly seen how it works and works to the betterment of it. We, uh, uh, people will know that I was a police commander in Derry. Martin McGuinness was a commander of a different style. Um, he and I shared a platform one time in the United States and I, and I was asked to introduce myself first. And um, I'd said as part of my introduction that I had spent more time 
in Martin McGuinness's house in the last 30 years than he had. And he, he acknowledged and got a, got a bit of a laugh. But that, that connection, and then in deeper conversations with him, and we came from, to some extent, similar backgrounds, you know, working class Catholic backgrounds, um, uh, you know, from pretty religious families or, and, and Irish backgrounds. But we then, you know, went different ways, and and uh, there are all sorts of reasons how that happens in life. And it, but I remember um, having a discussion with him about some of the more difficult issues, and I had said to him at once, "Is Martin, I'll make a deal with you." I said, "I'm willing to accept that you have an understanding of the last thirty-five years. I'm not willing to say it's right or that I agree with it, but I'm willing to accept it's yours, on one condition, that you accept that I have an understanding of the last thirty-five years." Uh, you don't have to agree with it or say it's right, but accept it's mine, and then we can talk about the future. And um, you know, out of all of them, uh, he got that in it, and I, he got it not just with me, but he got it with when he was when he met the Queen. He got it when he met um, other, you know, political other uh, politicians from a Protestant background, and I think that that's why that there was some um, ability to get on. And it, you know, that just that acknowledgement of the other had a different path. We don't always have to agree with them or say they're right in it, but an acknowledgement that 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 was their path in it. And and then you can talk about other things. I mean, one of the things you're highlighting there, Peter, is that, you know, it isn't just British-Irish negotiations are part of a peace process because this was you as an Irish Catholic disagreeing with and challenging um Martin McGuinness as another Irish Catholic who was disagreeing with and challenging you and the two of you were in negotiations in that way. Uh, partly at the heart of the question of British-Irish relations is the question of internal distinctions in Ireland, North and South, about what a peaceful Ireland can look like. Where do you see that happening now? Where do you see people of kind of maybe nationalist, even though that mightn't be a word everybody would use, or Irish or Catholic persuasions or affiliations? Where do you see the debates happening internally about what Irishness is worth working for? I constantly say as part of Cooperation Ireland that it's not our job to put two fields together between Fermanagh and Leitrim. But it is our job to put people together in it. And if ultimately if people decide to put the fields together, then that's fine. If they decide not to, that's fine too. You know, um, I think we we have to be open to the possibility of uh, of a range of options we cannot even see yet. And it, and you know, it's simply saying, "Oh, we want to get a united Ireland." You know, I I, do, I just disagree with that as a simple concept because if if you're open and genuine and you want to. Yeah, love your neighbour as yourself, then you have to be prepared to listen to what your neighbour has to say and what might work for your neighbour and therefore not having any fixed end result in this until we have genuinely talked it through. Um, and this has been going 800 years, so you know, what's the what's the rush that has to be done by the end of the next, end of next year? Uh, much much rather that as a, as a people that we get on, because we're here for a short space of time anyway. Um, and we don't own the place. Um, none of us own any of this place around here. We're here for um, on loan or for a, a holiday or whatever way you want to put it for a while. Um, and so in that period of time, you know, having these fixed viewpoints as if nothing changes in life. And that's, you know, if we get to a place that's either a united Ireland or it's as it is now, that that's utopia in it. You know, I, I, I don't subscribe to that thinking in it. 
I mean, some of what you're saying there about the question of Irishness and trying to have a fixed imagination about what something could be rather than negotiating with differences, that also could um, be used to address the questions that Brexit arises. Um, you know, the UK has now left the European Union and Brexit is something that's been very important on this podcast. That's partly why we're doing it this year, you know, the centenary of partition and the first year of Brexit. Um, what challenges does Brexit bring to the question of um, Irish cooperation, Irish engagement, British-Irish cooperation that you see from your point of view? Well, what I think you can see already since, you know, the, the referendum decision four and a half years ago was that the heyday of those good relations between the governments have largely gone and, and that conflict is in. We've almost, you know, separated out again, whereas uh, a lot of the progress was made um, was made because the British and Irish governments collectively and collaboratively wanted things to change and they were able to do it to some extent through Europe. And, and that has changed, you know, so, you know, even in recent weeks, so we have a shared island unit uh, set up by the Taoiseach's office. Um, but then the British government now are talking about appointing a cabinet minister for uh, protecting the union or supporting the union. And, and there are almost two polar opposites in that. And the danger is, and there's nothing wrong with either of those two places, um, but it's that bit in the middle that, that you know, the potency will be that, to some extent, most people from the Protestant community will want to line up with the um, behind the cabinet minister in the UK government about protecting the union and supporting the union, and Catholic nationalist Irish people and um, will want to work with the shared end. So then we end up polarising again, and so it's it's how do you find that middle ground and, and be able to have both of those conversations because both are legitimate conversations, yeah. um, and, and maybe the richness in those conversations gets you to a final place. Tarimila is Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation organisation. Working with thousands of people a year, Corimila supports groups to deepen inclusion, peace and belonging. This is the ninth of 12 episodes of the Corimila podcast. We've been delighted to bring these conversations to you from our kitchen table to yours in this important year. If you had three or four minutes to give us some feedback, we would be so grateful. We're currently wondering what people are picking up on in these episodes, if you're making use of the show notes or the discussion questions or the transcripts and what questions the podcasts are raising for you. So we have a feedback form. You can find it as well as the transcript and questions for this episode on corimila.org forward slash podcast or linked through the show notes in your podcast app. You're listening to the Corrie Mueller podcast. I'm Padraig Tuma, and my guest today is former senior police officer and now CEO of the peacebuilding charity Cooperation Ireland, Peter Sheridan. Peter, I'd like to ask you a question about peace processes. Like they're started and signed by people who at the time were heads of government or state or dignitaries or cultural figures or community leaders of some kind. But then, you know, those people move off the stage. They finish time in politics or they go to other jobs or all kinds of reasons. 
And I wonder sometimes what it means to see a peace process as something that can last generations rather than just be tied to one cycle of government or to particular leaders of the time. Tony Blair, John Major, Albert Reynolds, Bertie Ahern, uh, Bill Clinton. I think they owned this baby, the peace process, and they loved it and they looked after it and really cared for it. But all of those guys stepped off the stage almost at the same time. And then in came Gordon Brown, uh, George Bush, uh, Brian Cowan. And whilst they, they kind of still like this child, they had to adopt it. It wasn't theirs and, and they, they adopted it. But then as you get further out again with David Cameron uh, and the Kenny, um, and, and Barack Obama, it, they became, you know, the child was supposed to be growing up by this. And so they didn't feel that they had to have the same um, input into the child's growing up. And, and so they got further away. And, and I think in hindsight, all of that probably was a mistake. Now, of course, they would say, well, you know, like most children growing up, you expect them to mature. And so there's an expectation that we would mature here, um, maybe a false expectation. But I do think that because of that, that we, we lost some of the momentum around it. We lost some of the, the that interest that was required to really prosecute at home. And of course, you know, with the economic collapse around the world, just at a time we needed 6,000 jobs into West Belfast or North Belfast or 6,000 jobs into Derry that gave people hope, uh, young people in particular hope. What happened is their, their mother and father started to lose their jobs. Um, and, and we didn't get that, what people euphemistically talk about, a peace dividend. Uh, but I think that's right in it. But because the people in charge at the time didn't have the same love for that child that the, 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 the people who birthed the child, if you like. I mean, from around 2011 onwards, there was almost like a the initiation of a, a decade of gestures, you know, to go alongside the decade of commemorations. There were the visits of the royal family to Dublin and Belfast as well, the handshake that you were instrumental in supporting. Um, and then reciprocal visits by Michael D. Higgins, who was the president of Ireland at the time, and unveiling of portraits and inviting of unionist speakers and members to the Shannon in Dublin. And even the commemoration of 1916 had all of the all of the dead listed alphabetically rather than listed according to their politics. What's the importance for you of gesture when it comes to addressing long term divisions? between British and Irish um, relations. And then building on that, what needs to happen after gesture to make it even more meaningful? Yeah, I mean, I do think you know, pension the peace process from both both ends, from the top down and the bottom up. So the good work that's done by lots of groups and communities on the ground is critically important. But, you know, the, the symbolism of when the Queen went to Dublin, we were and we were closely involved in that state visit, but when she went to Dublin, and if you remember that she, once she was driving through the streets of Dublin, they were desolate and the guards had sealed it off. But all of those gestures of wearing green, shamrocks, uh, bowing at the Garden of Remembrance, all of those things you could feel growing on, on, on people in Ireland to the extent that by the time she got to Cork, and in fact, the Thurless with the Sinn Féin mayor, you know, met her and she got to Cork and she's able to walk about Cork City. Um, and, and that came because 
of how it changed people's perceptions. I, I would suspect that a lot of the people who turned out in Cork that day never envisaged that they would be turning out in Cork that day. But the Queen um, grew on people because of those genuine gestures. And, you know, that phrase uh, in her speech in, in Dublin, even the fact that she spoke Irish, you know, reached out to people, that she was wearing green, that she was wearing shamrocks. Uh, but when she's talked about you can bow to the past but not be bound by it, you know, I think it's it's the single most important phrase that I have heard uh, probably in my lifetime around the peace process. And, and it sticks with me every day and I still think about it. Um, because a, a lot of us could reflect on that. You can bow to the past but not be bound by it. And does the energy of that stay with you? Or do you think that's lost in terms of the the way that British-Irish relations have been negotiated through Brexit in the last while? Do you think there's still a chance to hang on to that kind of hope? Well, I mean, there is a chance because you saw um, Prince William and Kate um, talking in Irish uh, for St. Patrick's Day. You know, Prince William reached out again. And I think... Uh, irrespective of people's view about monarchy and so on. But but I think the royal family have walked the extra mile to try and reach out and have probably had more impact than politicians have had. I'm not taking away from some of the, the, because obviously politicians have all the hard work to do in it. But that symbolism is critically important because it sends a message that ripples right down through society. As it rippled from Dublin to Cork that day, you could feel that growing of acknowledgement of the Queen um, as she travelled that route in it. You know, it was almost a growing acceptance because of those gestures. And what do you think needs to be done now to build on these gestures, you know, more recent ones and ones from further back in the last 10 years? You know, I, th I think we have to look for ways and opportunities. We've gone through the, 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 uh, the centenary at the minute and there has to be opportunities for people to acknowledge that their neighbour might think about the centenary different. You know, that for some people, there is no reason why they can't celebrate the formation of the state, you know, because that was to them important. For other people, it was a sense of loss and that should be acknowledged as well. And, and if we're ever going to mature in this place, it's that ability to put yourself in the other person's shoes, to have sympathy with the other person without abandoning your own loyalties. But too often in this place, um, we you know, hold our own side dear uh, to the exclusion of other people's views. And, and you know, if, if we want to make this place work and we want to get on, then we have to be prepared to accept that there are people who have different viewpoints. And in the same way as I had that discussion with Martin McGuinness, you don't have to agree with me, but accept it's mine. I think it's an ironic thing that in places where I've read you, um, you as somebody who spent so much of your career um, in policing, you you bring phenomenal subtlety to the question of justice. You know, there were um, three attempts on your life. And when somebody was asking you about justice, what justice might mean, you said, like, what does justice mean? You know, is it the person who planted the bomb or who mapped out your route to and from mass or who staked out your home or who would have driven a getaway car like and so you were saying, even within those incidences that were just particularly about you, traumatic as that is, you were saying even here, the question about what justice looks like is not going to be straightforward. 
that's kind of an introduction really to asking you, what do you think justice looks like within the context of peace and how do those things speak to each other? Well, I, I do think there's a danger that we, we try to frame a peace process um, just through the lens of justice. Um, we will never do justice to the scale of the injustice on any side in this place over 35 years. Uh, and that's not to say, you know, I remember in discussion of Martin McGuinness at the time um, saying, you know, we were all in this together. It was really part of a conversation. And, and I took a minute and I thought to myself, no, we weren't all in this together. Because I didn't go to bed any night in life wondering who I could shoot, kill, bomb or maim. Nor did I get up any morning in life thinking of anybody as my enemy. And I said to Martin, that included you. I didn't think of you. Now, if you know, you're content to say that in it, well, then maybe we were all in this together. And that's not to take away from the fact that there are some police officers, some soldiers who did think like that. Um, but, you know, the, 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 I suppose human beings as we are with all of our feelings and faults in it, we will mistake, make mistakes, some deliberate, some genuine mistakes in it. But uh, there was a phrase I, I recall listening to, I think it was um, through Clonard Monastery one day, and it it's constantly sticks with me. You and I are one. And, and you know, it was about um, somebody who was on the street as a homeless person. And, and, and the, the priest used to go out for a walk and he would have almost walked to the other side, but he passed by constantly because, you know, the guy was normally um, intoxicated um, loud shouting, and so he, he kind of avoided him. But when he, when, when after you know, maybe six months of seeing this guy regularly, he um, said that uh, he wasn't there one day and he missed him. He missed him, even though he didn't have any contact, but he missed him. And he said he realized that he and I were one, you know, and, and I think that goes for us all. You know, whether it is somebody who tried to take my life, whether it is somebody I wronged in it, but ultimately behind all of that, you and I are one. Stories are something that you continually come back to. You know, I, I know that so much of your work has been about building connections between people who may not have a natural opportunity to be connected to each other and then creating stories, stories that are shared and told between them. Why are stories so important for you? I, I think it's part of Irish culture. You know, when when I was, we didn't have a television probably till it was nineteen sixty eight. So, and you know that killing and houses and people telling stories and yarns and you know, as we say, nothing gets lost in the telling of something. But I also think it comes back to the, the parables in the Bible that you know that's how Jesus at times explained things. Um, and I think that that's what we do in modern day. Sometimes it's rather than an academic paper, it can be easier explained um, through a lens of a story. Um, and I found that when people tell me stories, I, I, I kind of listen harder and think more about it. Yeah, I think we have, I don't know, uh, much more retention for the details of a story than we do for the details of an analysis. I think I read some research about that, but I'm forgetting now the percentages. You know, there's a personality in a story that you don't get in academic research or personalities in a story. 
in so many of your answers, you return to the question of religion, even just there, returning back to parable. Um, religion and Catholic practice has been a strong part of your life. Could you talk a bit about that and the role that that's given to you? Probably, you know, I, I obviously grew up in a Catholic, uh, in the Catholic faith, and but but it's probably wider than that. You know, it's Christian faith. It's it's a belief in 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 God. Um, who I think, in my grandmother's words, if he's born to be shot, he'll never be drowned. So I had a protector there, and and throughout life i i felt that at times you know there, there were incidents that for you know I, I, as one example um when i was in Derry, i was a uh, um sitting in the police front of a police land over as a sergeant we were caught sent to a call of a burglary up in the rosemount area and as we drove up the hill towards the burglary i something said to me there's a car parked there and i asked the driver to stop and we sat at the top of the hill and this car was down in a lay-by in a, in, a, in a hollow. And there's a number of other cars passed by. And then all of a sudden it exploded. Now, I don't know why, what, you know, whether it was a, the Holy Spirit, but something stopped me and stopped that Land Rover going down with four officers in it. And maybe a, a passerby passing at the same time when somebody's waiting to detonate it. Um, and you know, I could give you umpteen examples of it, and 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 I'm not um, talking about it. This sort of a, a religious perspective that I'm, you know, I take it. I do all the things, enjoy life like everybody else. But I do think that in the Christian faith, that that there that sense of hope that it gives you, I think helps you deal with a lot of things. Um, I mean, I, I have a brother-in-law who doesn't have that and we have a constant discussion about it. I say, but you know, what's at the end of all this? What's at the end of yours? And he thinks he's coming back as a dog or a cat or something. <laughs> His sense of, you know, I said, but I want to, you know, I, 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 something about knowing that there's something beyond this and something more than this. And, and you know, I, it just gives you that sense of hope in life that rather than it's the cliff edge whenever we fall off it. Um, and, and I don't, you know, suggest that, it, that you know other people have to believe in the same way I haven't but it, it came from a number of factors one is that's that's what I grew up in but growing up and then joining the police and and seeing you know even in the last two years when I was in the police I was at 52 murder scenes not terrorist related you know the murder of an 87 year old woman the murder of a nine-month-old baby and I always used to think that despite all of those acts of badness that you saw, there were a thousand acts of kindness around all of those murders that, that people didn't see on the television or the media. But because you were close to investigation, you know, you saw them and that sense of goodness that's in humanity out there. Um, so I, I, you know, I'm more comfortable believing all of that than believing nothing. Maybe that's a fear in me. Maybe the fear is that if you don't believe, you know, but I don't think so. I, you know, I, all of us this last year haven't been able to go to church. Um, but, you know, I go out for a walk and put my podcast on and and have had, it has opened up the possibility of listening to, to Mass in Cork or Clonard or in London, you know, and has opened up all of that to us and instead of sitting in the same seat in the same place every week. Peter Sheridan, thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Podrick. 
Our guest this week was Peter Sheridan of Cooperation Ireland. Don't forget to listen right to the end when Peter tells us who he'd like to have in his lockdown bubble. And again, if you had three or four minutes to give us some feedback, we would be so grateful. We're currently wondering what people are picking up on in these Corrymeela podcasts. If you're making use of the show notes or the discussion questions or the transcripts, where you're listening from, what these episodes are revealing to you, what questions you have, what ideas you have for future guests. So we have a feedback form. You can find it alongside the transcript and questions for this episode on corrymeela.org forward slash podcast or linked through the show notes in your podcast app. It'll only take a few minutes and you only need to answer the questions you want. Thanks for listening to the Cory Miller podcast. I'm Padraig Tuma, and I'll be back with another episode next week. The Cory Miller podcast comes to you with the generous support of our funders, the Henry Luce Foundation, the Community Relations Council of Northern Ireland, the Fund for Reconciliation from the Irish government and the support of the Friends of Cory Miller who give monthly or annually. The Corrymeela podcast is a fan fan production. The researcher and producer is Emily Rawling, and the podcast was mixed by Fra Sands at Safe Place Studios. I know that people have different and multiple identities, national identities. Would you be able to tell us a time when your national identity felt important to you? Yeah, well, I suppose the first thing to say, you know, I don't find national identity to be a fixed thing. You know, I know a lot of people do. I think, you know, I'm different than I was at 20 years of age or 40 years of age than I am now at 60. Um, and for me, it's about a sense of belonging. You know, it isn't about a flag or a symbol or who's head of state. Um, those are parts of it, but that's not what it is. And it, um, I, I suppose I, the, the one that automatically comes to mind, Patrick, when you ask me is that issue of, you know, I used to try and attend mass every Sunday. But on the one hand, you had somebody who's going to try to plant a bomb under my car, um, even though my kids were going to be in, at, at mass on Sunday. So if somebody attending mass on Sunday, instead of saying their prayers, was noting down details of my movements. So you had that, but also at the same time, I was in an organization that was 95% Protestant and the potential of losing that, you know, your, your sense of faith that, that I grew up with. And, and I fought hard against it. I remember going to see Bishop Edward Daly at the time. He said, Peter, you can pick any day in the week to go to Mass. You don't ever go on a Sunday, um, I, I, and which was good. But but I fought to retain that um, for that reason, that I felt that somebody else was trying to take it from me. And what three people from one of your cultures, because you have plurals, what three people from your cultures, present or past, would you want to be in a lockdown bubble with? Yeah, well, first of all, I have to say my wife, you know, <laughs> and, and, and my grandchildren. I mean, what I noticed that we, when we weren't able to have two grandchildren that were close by, I mean, when you weren't able to see them, I mean, it was a huge hole in your life. Whereas when they come in, they, they're only six and four, so lockdown doesn't mean a huge lot, so they bring a bit of humour and fun to it. And, and sometimes there's a tendency to think, oh, wouldn't it be great to have, you know, Nelson Mandela in your house or, I don't know, the Queen or whatever. And, and I've met all, all of those celebrities and presidents in the United States, but I discovered that that uh, as good a people as they are, they're ordinary people. They might do extraordinary roles, but they are ordinary people. And, it, and I think I might be bored with them 
in a lockdown after a while in it. So I want people who share the same values of me, have the same respect, have a sense of humour, um, who have hopes for the future, um, have a sense of loyalty and um, and probably have the similar worries and fears that I have that you could talk to in a lockdown. So um, hopefully I wouldn't be limited to three, but, but I'm, willing to, I'm willing to take a stranger in that if they have those same values and same characteristics, because um, I think that would be entertaining. <laughs>